Hello. Look at all these beautiful people here. That was a very fitting song, James. So, good morning, halito, which in Chata means hello. My name again is Chris Hawklotubi, or as I was recently corrected at Oklahoma, Hawklotubi. It is Tubby, and I was aware of this in high school, but that invited too many Teletubby references. So I kept it as Tubi, but I go back to Oklahoma, and no one recognizes my name. And I'm like, oh, wait, wait, hold on, Hawkla Tubby. I'm like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, you're a Tubby, you're a Tubby. Uh, so uh, uh, I am an assistant professor of religion at Cornell College, which is about 25 minutes away from here. As I said, I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, mixed with immigrant German, Jewish, and Spanish ancestries as well. And I want to acknowledge today that we worship on land that was once considered home and territory to the Bahoke or the Iowa, the Ojibwe and the Anishinaabe, the Kickapoo, Dakota, and many others who traveled here, whether by free will or by forced removal. It's a pleasure to preach here this morning and to try out some new material I've been working on for my current research project and future book that I plan on writing with my Matisse colleague, Daniel Zacharias, called Reading the Bible While Read, North American Indigenous Interpretations of Christian Scripture. For this project, I plan on traveling to interview and spend time with indigenous Christian leaders and ministers in the United States about how their indigenous stories, experiences, and concerns influence how they interpret the Bible and how they understand scripture to be speaking to their lives. At the heart of our project is the conviction that the creator revealed the creator's divine self to our collective indigenous ancestors well before the Spanish conquistadors, well before the French traders, and well before the British settlers introduced to us their encultured understandings of Jesus and the gospel. Sadly, often to disastrous and tragic results. Our attention has recently been drawn to the horrific conditions of many Native American boarding schools run by Christian churches, whether the Catholic Church or the United Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church both in the United States and in Canada, that bordered on cultural genocide insofar as they prohibited children from speaking their language, practicing their ceremonies, wearing their traditional clothes, and even returning home to their families. Kill the Indian, save the man was the policy, but this often just left dead and traumatized children. As my friends, indigenous theologians, Ray Aldred and Randy Woodley, have put it this past week regarding how indigenous people have heard the gospel. Quote, Jesus loves you, but he just doesn't like you. Nevertheless, at the heart of this project is an optimistic, constructive, and asset-based approach to documenting Native American interpretations of the Bible that asks what distinctive contributions, insights, and questions do indigenous people bring to scripture that are not obvious or immediately forthcoming to many non-indigenous readers 
that might help us to see Scripture afresh, to notice new elements of the Creator's grand story that were always there, but were not apparent before on account of our own cultural assumptions and concerns. Growing up in a conservative evangelical culture in Southern California, it was ingrained in me that the most clear, reliable, and infallible way in which God had communicated with us is through Scripture. Informed by this conviction, it became my my life's passion to study the Bible and its history in order to gain some kind of certainty for what God wanted for my life and the lives of others. I even went to divinity school to study it more, eventually earning a doctorate in biblical studies. And this may not have been a good idea, (laughs) not just because of the job market, but because I would eventually learn that not only a surprising amount of the Bible is not clear at all, once you begin poking in it, right, especially those stories that Sunday school kind of veered away from, but that much of our clear or plain readings of the Bible are actually tinted by the color of our cultures and ethnic experiences. That is to say that our understanding of the Creator and Jesus often reflect our own lives and how we imagine what perfection and goodness looks like. The gospel has never existed in a cultural vacuum, but has come to us already packaged in particular cultures. Uh, what we might think of the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, the Roman cultures, that all informed the, the writing of the Gospels and the, the assumptions that the authors held. And these Gospels, these stories were handed down over time and interpreted by Western European cultures and then now received in our own American culture. Right? I emphasize this because so many uh, evangelical Christians have come to my Native American brothers and sisters who are Christians and leaders and said, well, you can't, you, you can't bring in your Native American stories, right? Because you're, you're, you're mixing it with p- impure pagan culture, which is ironic, right? Because we're about to approach Easter, uh, we, we're about to approach Christmas, right? Which is just the Christian conscription of Roman Saturnalia, right? We didn't like the partying that Romans were holding, we didn't like the god Mithras, who was born on December 25th, and we said, nope, that's Jesus' birthday. The Romans were terrible people, but they're not going to put a census in the dead of winter, right? Jesus, the baby Jesus in the womb is not traveling through the snows of Palestine. Anyways, we could talk about Easter, too, because that's totally in the Bible, right? Right? All... Syncretism. We've always been a syncretistic faith. The gospel's always reflected the cultures to which it has come to. And so it's no different when an indigenous community says, we want to tell our own stories. We want to translate this in our own language. Uh, uh, The creator has spoken to us too. This creator has given us symbols by which we can understand the divine that are still helpful. So, In my own attempt to know God better, in my own Western hubris of thinking that if only with enough time studying, with only enough degrees from the most prestigious Ivy League schools, with enough books, God forbid all the books I have, right, um, I can understand God. I can know God. 
And I can especially correct other people when they're wrong about God, right? Uh, no. <laughs> I need others to know God more fully. And that's super humbling, right? I can't know God on my own. That despite everything I have, I am limited by the perceptions and cultures which I was raised in. And if I want to know God fully, I need to listen to others. I need to walk with others. I need to hear others' stories to know the greatness of who the Creator is and wants and is up to. And now I might add, those others that I need may not all be human, but include creation itself. So over the course of my studies on indigenous lifeways and expressions of Christianity, I've grown to appreciate how indigenous people recognize nature, including plants, animals, and even rocks, as potential sources or conduits for which divine revelation can be expressed and that they can take their parts as teachers in our lives. So this recognition was reaffirmed for me when my, uh, I just took my recent trip to Oklahoma two weeks ago. Uh, next slide where I had the opportunity to visit the brand new Choctaw Cultural Center in Durant. Decorating both the walls and the tiling on the ground, geometric patterns of diamonds abounded. These diamonds that sprawled across the center, both above and below, were to honor the rattlesnake, who taught the Choctaw two important lessons. First, the rattlesnake's rattle, which he shakes to warn those from treading upon him, and to respect his authority over death, taught the Chata about the importance of not only respecting our enemies, but the importance to give fair warning so as not to engage in unnecessary warfare. According to tradition, a French ship looking for harbor once sought to dock on the shores of the Mississippi Chata territory, which was where they were originally located. When the ship approached, the sailors, still aboard, noticed a long, intimidating line of Choctaw tubbies. All right? And actually, tubby is the, the, the suffix of warrior, right? In Cherokee, it's killer. So a bunch of tubbies out there, a bunch of tubbies in a line doing the rattlesnake stomp dance, right? And one person doing this stomp is not really that intimidating, but you get a line of tubbies, a line of tubbies. You don't want anything to do with that. So the sailors recharted their path, said, nopes, and they left for a different port. Secondly, the Choctaw noticed that whenever the rattlesnake struck out to bite, it risked, it's risked itself, it risked breaking its fangs, and sometimes it would break its fangs, biting. And it taught the Choctaw that any aggression, any warfare, you are putting your life at stake, and you're putting the lives of your family at stake. So don't go into warfare half-heartedly or without counting the cost. And at, all, at every possible moment, seek alternative pathways of peace. Seek out peace. And so the rattlesnake is honored by the Chata for its lessons that have proven essential for walking the bright path. And for survival all these years, despite settler colonialism, that would materialize in the pressured relocation across the Trail of Tears 
from their homelands to Mississippi to the southern eastern or southeastern Oklahoma. Another story I'd like to share uh, comes from my friends at the Good Medicine Way Church, which is led by Dr. Casey Church, who's Potawatomi, and currently streams on Facebook from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Each service before the community sings around the ceremonial drum, space is open for members to share what creation insights have been given to them during the week. During one such session, a teacher and elder and friend of mine in the community, Kimberly Medicinehorn, shared about her experience watching a poor frog leap to and fro to avoid the nuisance of a very curious blue jay. Looking up on this scene, she reflected on how in her own life she often wants to travel a safe and straightforward path. What she observed was though that like the frog, her life doesn't take her down that straightforward path. And she has to go with the flow. She has to, she has to react. She has to respond. And it doesn't always feel great, but she knows this is what she has to do. And that, that was a season of life that she was living in right now. What she observed was a living parable playing out in front of her with the Holy Spirit guiding her heart to an insight that she needed in that moment. What if Creator has set before us a creative order suffused with other such living parables, only waiting to be discovered and appreciated with those who have eyes to see and ears to hear? Although this kind of way of looking at the world may not all be obvious to us and even questionable, especially to those raised in an evangelical culture like I was, for countless indigenous people, this is an obvious way of looking at the world. An indigenous interpretation of the Bible then poses the question, what if it was natural and obvious to learn from creation as we do from Scripture? Indeed, if the stars can induce the psalmness to reflect upon the smallness and humbleness of humanity before the works of God in Psalm 8.3, and the stars can be called upon to worship the Creator in Psalm 148.3, might the psalmist think that they can teach us something too? To go even further, if we accept that Jesus, in his human nature, grew in wisdom and in years, as the Gospel of Luke says in chapter 2, verse 52, what if, what if Jesus learned from creation too? And what might creation have taught Jesus? And what might that mean for us today? So next slide. Let's consider a few examples. First, let's turn to the brief story of Jesus' time in the wilderness as narrated in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, verses 12 to 13. Now, today I'll be reading from a recently published First Nation version translated by my friend Terry Wildman, who is Ojibwe and Yaqui. Here's the hardbound copy of it. You can follow along with me above. A quick note about this translation. I really appreciate how Terry seeks to translate what individual names would mean 
to some ancient audiences fluent in Aramaic and Hebrew. Indeed, for those who know Chata, when you hear my own last name, Hakletubi, they would recognize it simply as meaning, he who listens to kill. So in this translation, Jesus is called creator sets free. As a play on the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua, from which the name Jesus derives, which simply means the Lord is salvation. So, quote, right then and there, the Spirit drove creator sets free into the desert wilderness. For 40 days and nights, he remained there, surrounded by wild animals and being tested by the accuser, that ancient trickster snake. Spirit messengers also came to him to give him strength and comfort. What do we imagine Jesus doing for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness? Most likely, whatever we imagine, it will be informed by our own experiences of fasting or of wilderness, some campy Jesus film, and uh, uh, maybe even some outdoor survival show, right? So if Bobby was here, right, it would be his favorite show, Naked and Alone, right? That's oral tradition. Don't, don't, don't ask him about this. <laughs> He'll deny it. <laughs> uh, it um, yeah, as my elders say in uh, uh, my Native American uh, seminary they teach on, that, that, that if you're especially loved, you get teased. And believe me, I get, I get teased a whole lot in my seminary, so it's all good. Uh, our mind always imagines something to fill in the gaps, right? Or we have to, especially with Mark, who is the shortest gospel, right? He... he He's just moving, right? Immediately this, immediately this. You've got to fill in the gaps. And we do. So for Lakota readers and other indigenous people familiar with ceremonies of Plains Indians, as Choctaw theologian Stephen Charlson has pointed out, this sounds an awful, like, uh, awful lot like a vision quest. For the Lakota, a vision quest consists of numerous days of fasting alone in the wilderness in order to demonstrate one's pitifulness and humility before the spirits and the creator. Out of one's deep humility and vulnerability, a person petitions the creator to receive some kind of vision that sheds light on their authentic self, their calling and their gifts that they have to offer to the community. And certainly it may be that the accuser, that ancient trickster snake, manifested itself to creator sets free in a vision wherein he took Jesus to the highest point of the temple and showed him all the nations of the earth. This, in fact, actually may be the more natural way of reading this, lest we suppose that Satan teleported Jesus to all these places and collapsed space and time so that Jesus could see all the nations of the earth. But moreover, vision quests provide opportunities for individuals to reflect on, observe, and listen to the lessons of creation that surrounds them as they think about their own roles and responsibilities for the community. Can we imagine Creator Sets Free too reflecting upon, observing, and listening to creation as he prepares himself for the sacred ministry of preaching and teaching and healing? Uh, next slide. Did he notice the flight and beautiful feathers of the hopo, Israel's native bird? 
Did he acknowledge and respect the space of the Levant viper slithering by? Or observe the resilient grazing habits of the Arabian oryx? Did his time abstaining from food and society lead creator sets free to be more receptive to the very lessons that would encapsulate what the bright path or harmony way would consist of, that is, the kingdom or kingdom of God? And did some of these lessons come to him from observing his animal and botanical kin? After John the Baptizer, or Gift of Goodwill, mentored and baptized Creator Sets Free, did creation then step in as Jesus' final teacher before his ministry? Let's now turn to another passage that David just talked about in his last sermon on the abundance that exists in God's economic vision, which contrasts against our own culture's limited vision of scarcity. So I appreciated David's interpretation so much, and I hope that my own spin will show just how rich with meaning these texts can be, especially when we read them from different cultural perspectives. So let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, and again I'll read from the First Nations version. Look to the ravens, or the hopo, the winged ones who fly above us. Do they plant seeds? And gather the harvest into a storehouse? No. But the great spirit gives them plenty to eat. Do you not know he cares even more for you? Will worrying about these things help you live one hour longer? If you can do such a small if you cannot do such a small thing, why do you worry about the rest? Have you seen the wildflowers grow in the plains and meadows? Do you think they work hard and long to clothe themselves? No. I tell you, not even the great chieftain stands in peace, wearing his finest regalia, was dressed as even one of these. If the great spirit covers the wild grass in the plains with such beauty, which is here today and gathered for tomorrow's fire, will he not even take better care of you? Why is your faith so small? Why worry so much about what to eat or drink? This is what the nations of the world who have lost their way have given their heart to. But your Father from heaven knows that you need these things. Now, typically, we might look at this passage and think that Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, was creative here in distilling divine wisdom in a matter that good old Galilean farmers, like us good old Iowan farmers, right, can understand. But what if we take indigenous experiences seriously? What if Jesus' parables and teachings that involve creation arose from the human Jesus' close observation and contemplation of nature rather than the divine Jesus' attempt to speak baby talk to us infantile humans? What if Creator Sets Free learned about the simplicity of life and the dangers of becoming consumed by our inexhaustible desire for food and clothing and the social status that they communicate to others? What if Jesus' attention to the provisions provided to the ravens in the sky 
and the beauty of the wild flowers in the plains inspire the very teaching that he would share with his disciples. Certainly, this example can be multiplied to include the cursed fig tree that doesn't produce fruit, Jesus' parable about the weeds and the grain, the tree and its fruit, the weather signs, the mustard seed, the sower and the seeds, and the mountains that move by faith. It's a small turn, but I believe this has significant consequences for how we imagine the possible ways in which the Holy Spirit might speak to us and simultaneously affirm ancient indigenous ways of knowing. If we are to model our lives around the good path of Jesus, might we follow him down this trail as well? I admit that this does not come naturally to me, even though I'm part Native American, that's true. And truth be told, it doesn't come naturally to anyone, not to any Native American I know. It must be practiced and experimented and experienced like anything else. Indeed, nature is no clearer than Scripture, and it too is full of ambiguity and complexity. And yet, like Scripture, I believe that nature can be a vehicle for God's message and love for us when we come to it with the proper intentionality and appreciation it deserves. And when we open ourselves to the Creator's Spirit to meet us there in these moments to tell us what our hearts need to hear. Indeed, to summarize the great German theologian Karl Barth, Scripture, Christian Scripture, only becomes God's infallible word when God's spirit and breath connect with us in the moment of reading. See what he does there, right? Scripture becomes God's word, not because of what it's on the printed page, but it's in that moment, it's in that connection. It's when the divine meets the text, meets the person, that is when the authority of God is communicated. At least this is what Karl Barth was imagining and thinking of. And I, th- I think this works, with scripture t- this works with nature too. So why should we not recognize the possibilities of divine lessons that saturate the created world around us? Why can't the Holy Spirit meet us among the trees in nature just as the Spirit meets us in the pages of Scripture produced from the pulp of these very same trees? If I could point to one thing that I'm learning from nature these days that relates to my worries, is the need to slow down and to recognize that things grow and develop at their own pace. As someone who craves things to instantly update, to change, to charge, and improve immediately, whether it's with respect to my daughter's own emotional maturity and development Right? This weekend, we had a terrible, terrible cry fest over Candyland. God forbid you try to play a board game with your four- and seven-year-old, right? Or you try to turn off the TV when they're watching some Minecraft replay. They're not even playing Minecraft. They're watching someone else play Minecraft. Right? Dear. Um, I find myself impatient and anxious. These are similar to the motions I felt about the maple and crab apple trees I've been planting in my yard. Would they grow correctly? 
Would their leaves change the colors I bought them for or produce the abundance of flowers in the spring for which I hoped? Would they establish strong enough roots despite the strong winds, thank you, Drecho, and despite the, uh, uh, the other trees that are underneath the soil? Again, thank you, Drecho, for destroying those trees and messy. <laughs> thank you, Drecho. Um, I have to tell you, looking at the beauty of my trees now, a year, two years later, having experienced a very brilliant spring full of fragrant pink flowers, and now this fall, which is so vibrant with yellows and reds and oranges in my garden, I realized that my worries were premature and impatient. I'm reminded that whatever happens, nature continues to move on and it's much more resilient than I give it credit for. And maybe I'm more resilient than I give myself credit for. And maybe my daughters are too. And you as well. And maybe we will all grow, flourish, and adapt as we need to if given enough space, sunlight, and living water. In all our toil and worrying about what may be or how things turn out, we are missing out on the abundance, the beauty, and the resilient flourishing that may already be present before us. Thank the Creator for creation, our teacher, that teaches and reminds us of these lessons that remain just as timelessly crucial to hear in Jesus' day as it is our own. Yakoke, thank you, and amen.